Good morning. This week, I, or a couple weeks ago, I had a nice uh, clickbait sermon title. I thought about keeping that momentum going this week, because I really wanted to name the sermon, Jesus Ate with Zach. <laughs> but I didn't, because that'd be weird. It's a lot better than what Mark came up with, though. He thought I should title it, Jesus Ate with Short People. So if you're a short person here with us today, I apologize for Mark's insensitivity. <laughs> the truth is, Jesus did eat with a man named Zach, Zacchaeus. And in this passage this morning, we're given a conversion story. It's standard fare at this point, right? We're in the Gospels. It's another story of a life changed by Jesus. The Gospels are full of conversion stories. That's so obvious, it's silly to even state. But perhaps what's not so obvious is what are you supposed to do with them? What are you supposed to do with these conversion stories as someone who's already converted? Well, it's this. These stories remind you that you need to be reconverted over and over again. As Christians, we must continue to be reconverted all throughout our lives. And maybe you hear that and you think to yourself, well, that kind of sounds like we could lose our salvation. It's not what I mean. We believe that once a person is saved, they aren't unsaved and then have to be resaved. We believe that when a when God raises a person from death to life, that is irreversible. But how do you know when it's happened? God didn't send us a t-shirt so that we can let the world know. Or maybe you hear of reconversion or think of reconversion, you're like, well, what about election? Well, we certainly believe in election, 100%. But believing in the doctrine of election is not what makes one elect. Pharisees believed in election too. In fact, history shows that a preoccupation with election very quickly creates a laziness towards discipleship. It can create a malaise towards the mission of God, and it, instead of urgency, there's a sense of apathy. And so, yes, election teaches that salvation is a sovereign work of God, start to finish. But it doesn't teach us that we don't have any work to do. And especially in our culture, and our time, and our place, and one of the products, I think, of evangelicalism is that we tend to think of salvation as just this one-time decision. But the Bible also teaches us that it's an ongoing reality. It's a continuous recommitment over and over again to follow after Jesus. That's why Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. That's why Peter said, make your calling and election sure. We do not presume God's grace. We respond to it. Because God's sovereign work in salvation means that it will bear fruit in our lives. God's sovereign work in salvation means that it will bring transformation. 
God's sovereign work in salvation means that it will bring us new desires. God's sovereign work in salvation means that it will produce conviction. God's sovereign work in salvation produces real change in our lives. Why? Because God's sovereign work in salvation is about changing you more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. But we don't always look like Jesus, do we? Even as Christians, we fail. And we fail hard. We lose our way. We struggle with ongoing sin. We have seasons of living on our own terms. We get swallowed up with bitterness, unforgiveness, lust, envy, anger. And we lose sight of how those things produce patterns of living in our lives and we become indifferent or numb or blind to the damage that it causes. We wrestle with addiction, self-medication, coping mechanisms to deal with the challenges of life. And instead of moving towards Jesus, we go our own way. Even as Christians, we get lost. And we need one that comes to seek and save the lost. Not just once, but over and over again. It's in these moments of sin, struggles, and seasons. We know it's not right just for someone to think, you know, well, I made a decision a long time ago. I'm good. I answered an altar call, filled out a card, said a sinner's prayer. I'm fine. No, it's in these moments we need a reconversion. We need to return, we need to turn away from sin and return to Jesus with a renewed sense of devotion and fidelity to him. Because what happens in these conversion stories isn't just about a one-time decision. It's something that should happen all throughout our lives. We need these conversion stories because they remind us of how Jesus continues repeatedly to meet us in our sin and how he calls us back to himself. And the Bible uses a very specific word to describe this reconversion within us. The Bible calls it repentance. And in this conversion story of Zacchaeus, it's one of the most beautiful pictures of repentance that you can find. It helps us understand what it is and what it looks like. The challenges are simple notions and definitions of what repentance is. Because it gives us a framework for understanding how repentance is more than just a quick I'm sorry or just a recognition that there's some sin there. No, this story is one that reawakens us to the transforming power of repentance. And it calls us home. So who is Zacchaeus? How does Luke introduce him to us? Well, first, Zacchaeus is a Jew, a son of Abraham. Secondly, he's a tax collector. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how much tax collectors were despised in Israel. They are public enemy, number one. They're the ones who collected the exorbitant taxes imposed on the people by the Roman Empire. But what made them particularly hated by the people was that the Roman Empire allowed tax collectors to collect their taxes, but also to add on top of that whatever they wanted. Roman Empire didn't care what a tax collector charged anybody. As long as they got what they wanted, they could let the tax collector take what they wanted. And tax collectors were notoriously greedy. They heaped tremendous burdens on the people and took advantage of them. And the people couldn't do anything about it. 
because tax collectors had the backing of the empire. And so given that Zacchaeus is a Jew, makes him all the more despicable. Because if there's anything that Israel hated more than a tax collector, it's a Jewish one. He's seen as an accomplice to the oppression of his own people. He's complicit in the injustice that's imposed upon them. He's seen as one who's betrayed his own people for his own greed and his own personal gain. So what do you think that you would think of someone who took 75% of all that you had? Luke also tells us that Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. The Zach Standard Version translation of that is that Zacchaeus is making bank. He is filthy rich, incredibly wealthy, because he's taking his cut from all of the other tax collectors in the region. So do you see him? Here's Zacchaeus, a man of extraordinary wealth and one of the most powerful, prominent, hated men in the city. But there's something else that Luke wants us to see about Zacchaeus. And it's hidden beneath the surface. You have to look behind you know, all those garments of fine linen, perfectly manicured appearance and outward exterior. You have to look beneath his greed because he, Luke wants us to see that Zacchaeus is hungry. Zacchaeus wants something more. Maybe he's dissatisfied with his life. Maybe he feels ashamed about what he's done. Maybe he's just so tired of being hated. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way that he wanted. Maybe all that money didn't fill that hole in his soul the way that he thought it once would. And he comes to a place where he's looking for more. Capital M, more. And he comes looking for Jesus. And he doesn't want to miss him. But notice that Luke says that he doesn't just try to get a quick passing glance at Jesus. Luke wants us to see the extraordinary lengths that Zacchaeus goes to see Jesus and not miss him. Because Luke also tells us that Zacchaeus is short. He can't see over the crowds. So what does he do? He climbs a tree. He climbs a tree. Now let's put this together. Here's a man of profound status and wealth and stature in the community. A man who would have demanded respect from the people, sitting in a tree, making a fool of himself to see Jesus. Imagine showing up for church this morning, and on your way in, you look up and see David Foster just sitting in a tree. Because who climbs trees? Children climb trees. Not the most prominent man in the community. Not a man who's looking to preserve his dignity and reputation in the eyes of the people. Not a man who's preoccupied with himself. Now, he lays all of that aside. Why? Because he does not want to miss Jesus. Jesus walks up to that tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. Will you receive me? Zacchaeus hurried down and received Jesus with joy. So what does this teach us about repentance? 
This teaches us where repentance begins. It begins when Jesus becomes more important than our own self-importance. It begins when we lay ourselves aside and we strive to lay hold of Jesus. It begins when we take our gaze off of ourselves and we place it upon him. Because if you think about it, you know, if you find yourself in a season of struggling with sin or deeply rooted sin issues, be it anger, unforgiveness, envy, lust, vanity, or wrestling with an addiction, a rough season in your marriage, what's going on? It's not rooted in a desire for Jesus. No, those things are rooted in a preoccupation and a pre-commitment to self. Where Jesus is no longer in view. And our focus is turned upon ourselves and our own desires and our own satisfaction. And this becomes the manner in which we live and operate. And if you think about it, in these moments, in, the, in these seasons, it's like a deconversion, is it not? Where we effectively live as though Jesus doesn't exist and we become the most important thing in our lives. It's about our importance, our values, our desires, our satisfaction. Those are the things that rise to the top of our priority list, and we want it to be at the top of everybody else's. We become the most important thing in our marriage, our parenting, friendships, relationships, and that becomes a pattern for how we live, and we go our own way. Don't we all know how quickly we can become consumed with ourselves? And when that happens, what's the result? Well, the result is the same thing that we see with these crowds. We miss Jesus, just like they did. It says in verse 7, And when they saw it, they grumbled. And they say, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But don't be too misled by that in the sense that what they're really angry about is just Zacchaeus. No, there's something deeper going on in their heart. Because that word for grumbled is the same word that's used of Israel whenever they grumbled in the wilderness. That's all-star grumbling, by the way. They grumble. They grumble whenever things didn't go how they wanted it. The grumbling that occurred when they were fundamentally dissatisfied with the actions and intent of God. And the same thing is happening with these crowds. The same thing is true of them. They saw Jesus go into the house of a sinner to fellowship and commune with him. And this discredits Jesus in their eyes. They scoff and they grumble because they too were what? They were dissatisfied with the actions and intent of God. Because his actions and his intent did not match theirs. They didn't like that Jesus sought to affirm those they despised. They didn't like that Jesus went to those who were outside of their moralistic social sphere. And they grumble. Because even though they're looking at Jesus, they're not looking for Jesus. Their focus is really on themselves. They wanted a Jesus that reinforced their own values and priorities. They wanted a Jesus that affirmed what they affirmed and rejected what they rejected. They wanted a Jesus who affirmed who they thought was an insider and an outsider. 
They wanted a Jesus who affirmed their sense of being wronged and validate their sense of anger and contempt. Their focus was on themselves, and they were unwilling to lay those things aside when they realized that what Jesus was after was not what they were after, and they missed him. And even as Christians, we lose our own way. We all do. And Jesus says to us, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. And yet, don't we know how easy it is to prop that cross up in the corner for days or weeks or months or years? And we go about life in a way that seems best to us. Our focus narrows on ourselves and Jesus is no longer in the picture. And we stop approaching situations. We stop approaching life in a way that thinks about what he desires. And instead, we become consumed with our desires and our own priorities We focus on what we think is right. We hold on to the ways that we've been wronged. We cling to what we think that we deserve. And Jesus is no longer considered. And so in a difficult season with your spouse, it becomes about being right, winning the argument, not giving up any ground, rather than seeking reconciliation. Or if we're harsh and impatient and angry towards our children, Instead of humbly apologizing and modeling repentance, it's more about maintaining our sense of power and position and authority and not showing any weakness. Or when we've been hurt by someone else, we don't want to be hurt again. So we hold on to that unforgiveness because it makes us feel like we can hold on to some sense of power. And it gives us the upper hand in the relationship. And we hold on to those things. Those things feel so right in the moment because they promise us that if we do it, if that's how we approach the situation, then we can maintain some sense of value and dignity and self-worth. But when we do, we miss Jesus. And it's in these moments that a reconversion needs to take place. Where we turn away from that sin that besets us. Or we stop going our own way. We stop focusing on ourselves. And we fix our gaze upon Jesus. And we say, I don't want to miss him. And we remember his words when he says to us, he who seeks his life will lose it. But he who loses it will find it. And when Zacchaeus climbs this tree, he shows us the beginning of repentance. He laid aside his sense of dignity. He laid aside his reputation. He laid aside his sense of self-importance. He laid aside his sense of self-worth. And he said, I don't want to miss Jesus. Jesus became more important than all of those things. He stops thinking about what others might think of him. He stops worrying about the place that he occupies in their life. He isn't concerned about ridicule or rejection. He lays all of that aside because Jesus has become more important than anything else. And when he climbed that tree, he left an old life behind because he was ready for a new one. And repentance begins in you in the same way that it began in him. So when we lay aside our self-importance and all of its forms and all of its expressions, and we look for something better in Jesus... And it happens when we say, I want Jesus in my marriage. Jesus, I want you in my parenting. 
I want you in my relationships. I want you in my thought life. I want to do what you desire. I want to do what brings you joy. Even if it hurts, even if it feels costly and heavy, I want life on your terms, not mine. Because I'm ready for something more. And I don't want to miss you. And this is where repentance begins. And that simple desire for Jesus above all else. This is where that reconversion begins to take place, where we turn away from those old ways of life and we lay hold of new life. And Zacchaeus' story shows us the power of repentance. Because it shows us what happens when Jesus starts to lead the way. And all the transforming realities that began to take place in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he looks for Jesus, and when he encounters him, something extraordinary takes place. Because something in that encounter left him with a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. And out of that, we see repentance take on its full form. And it is nothing short of radically transformative. Because we see two things happen. The first thing is that Zacchaeus owns his sin. He takes responsibility for it. He lays down his defenses. He sees himself for what he is. He sees his greed. He sees the damage that he's caused in the lives of others. He recognizes and admits that he's taken advantage of them for his own personal gain. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't blame others. He doesn't treat it like it's just some small personal struggle that doesn't affect anybody else. No, he owns what he's done. And he sees the damage it's caused and all the people that he's hurt. But secondly, he seeks to make it right. True repentance seeks restoration. Instead of taking advantage of the poor, he gives to the poor. He gives back what he took. He gives back what he stole in abundance. Why? Because true repentance seeks to make it right. True repentance seeks to the best of one's ability to undo the damage that they've caused. Because true repentance doesn't just recognize the sin. It seeks to undo that damage. And Zacchaeus shows us that repentance in its full form isn't just about seeing how our sin affects us, but also seeing how it affects others. Because like we said, repentance is about transforming you into the image and likeness of Jesus. One who comes to undo the effects and power of sin. One who seeks restoration. One who seeks reconciliation. One who seeks wholeness where there is brokenness. So repentance isn't just admitting an anger problem. It's learning to see how it destroys relationships and robs others of dignity and value with cruel words and harsh tones and hatred in the heart. It's seeing how anger can create a culture of fear in your home. Because who wants to live next to an active volcano waiting for it to erupt? Repentance is more than just admitting a lust problem, but also learning to see how it robs your spouse of intimacy 
and offers betrayal in its place. Repentance is more than recognizing an addiction, but learning to see how it robs others who need you most of your time, your presence, your empathy, your heart. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean we don't struggle with these things. No, being a Christian means we know we struggle with these things. Because sin creates destructive patterns in our lives that are just simply deeply rooted in living for self. And that's why we need repentance. Because repentance is that reconversion process that calls us home. When we lay ourselves aside and we're reintroduced to Jesus as though it were the first time. And repentance is hard work. It's uncomfortable. And it costs a lot. Because it confronts that self-preservation and self-importance within us that is as natural to us as breathing. And it brings us to that crossroads where Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses it will find it. And Zacchaeus' convergence story says to you, friend, give it up. Lose it. Let it go and find Jesus once again. Do the hard work because it's worth it. Because just look at the extraordinary power of repentance in his life and all that it transformed. Just consider how much it would have transformed, not just his life, but an entire city. Think of how many people his repentance would have impacted in the lives that would have been changed. The holidays are coming up. And I know what you're thinking. It's the same thing I'm thinking. I'm up at Christmas Carol. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Michael Caine is an amazing Ebenezer Scrooge. And when I watch that movie every year, I can't wait till the very end. Where after Scrooge has this incredible conversion moment and he saw himself for what he was, he's changed. But it also is a beautiful picture of how it changed not just him, but everyone and everything around him. It's such an incredible picture of the transforming power of repentance. Because on Christmas morning, Scrooge walks out onto the streets a changed man. And he joyfully begins to undo the damage that he'd done. Instead of humbug, he greets the people with joy and kindness. He gives gifts to the people. He relieves their burdens. He cares for those of low estate and he gives to the poorhouses. He pays off the mortgage on Bob Cratchit's house. He raises his salary. He pays for the medical care of Tiny Tim. And the city is transformed and the people gather around and they are all filled with joy because the greedy one had been transformed into the giving one. And best of all, he prepares a feast for all the people and they dine and fellowship together. Now, at this point, I think it's safe to say that Charles Dickens straight up ripped off the Zacchaeus story. He owes Jesus some royalty checks. Because can you imagine for a second the transformation that took place in Jericho after, after Zacchaeus encountered Jesus? Can you imagine how much joy he would have brought to that city? 
when the chief tax collector became the chief repenter, when he gave half of his extraordinary wealth to the poor to relieve their burdens, when he went door to door with a wagon with buckets full of cash, paying back fourfold from everybody he stole from. Because when you're a tax collector, who have you defrauded? Everyone. That's who. So he had to go door to door in the entire city, and he gave back what he took, and he filled their coffers because greed had been replaced with generosity. And to me, the best part of that story is that nowhere does it actually tell you that Zacchaeus stopped being a tax collector. Why is that the best part? Because if he did, and some other greedy tax collector would have taken his place, most likely another tax collector that would have taken advantage of the people, heaped burdens upon them for their own personal gain. But how about having a generous tax collector? How about having one who didn't take advantage of the people but sought their best interest and promoted their good? One who protected the people from greed and injustice. One who stemmed the tide of oppression and replaced it with opportunities. Can you imagine the joy he brought to that city? Zacchaeus' repentance changed far more lives than just his. So how many might yours change? Behold the transforming power of repentance. Because repentance transforms you into the image and likeness of Jesus. And that'll change your life. And that'll change the lives of others around you. And that transforming power is offered to you. And it begins with that simple desire to lay oneself aside and be reintroduced to the one who, just like Zacchaeus, laid aside his dignity and self-importance and climbed a tree. But the difference is that he was nailed to it. And he received the mocking and the ridicule and the contempt of the crowds, and in its place he offered them mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness. He was one who came to relieve the burdens of his people, to break the patterns and the power of sin, and to undo the damage it caused by bringing new life. And he's the one who comes to you this morning and says, I'm coming to your house today. Will you receive me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning as we come to your table, we ask that you...